0: From 89.7 WUWM Milwaukee's NPR, this is Leg Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll look back at the Wisconsin Policy Forum's top findings of 2023. Then we'll speak with actor Willem Dafoe about his Wisconsin roots and road to fame.
1: I was a dopey kid from Appleton who wanted to be around these people that were making theater in a university setting. That was it.
0: Plus, we'll learn about a test created by Wisconsin researchers to help Hmong people who are experiencing hearing loss.
2: With the lack of culturally and linguistically appropriate tests for Hmong patients, they're not getting comprehensive, equitable care. You know, the care that they're getting is not as up to par.
0: All that's coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us today. Every year, the Wisconsin Policy Forum puts out dozens of reports on issues facing Wisconsinites. 2023 was a big year for the forum. They created 54 reports and interactive tools, then picked out the top findings of the year that made an impact on Wisconsinites. Rob Hankin is the president of the forum, and he joins Lake Effect's Joy Powers to talk about their top findings of the last
3: year.
4: When you release a report, what's the hope? What's the goal?
3: Well, the goal clearly is to reach policymakers. We're the Wisconsin Policy Forum and putting out research just for research sake. While that can be interesting and while I'm not going to make pretend that we know that every single report that we put out is going to have uh, an immediate relevance to policymakers and potentially engender serious debate. For the most part, if we're going to put the work into doing a research product, uh, we want the issue to be relevant, and we hope that the report's findings will be accessed and uh, at least thought about by policymakers.
4: Sure. Now we're going to look at the uh, five Biggest, I guess, report, most timely reports from uh, 2023.
3: What, what we characterize as our top five research findings, we're really looking at individual findings within reports.
4: Uh, so the, the first finding then that we're going to look at is about marijuana and the accessibility of marijuana to Wisconsinites. Uh, I, I think specifically the proximity that most Wisconsinites have to a legal dispensary in, of course, another state.
3: Yes. And so this was just sort of a step back. The forum has done several analyses over the years just trying to frame for policymakers and the public, where do we stand in terms of both our local and statewide marijuana policies? Now, most people are aware of where we stand statewide. But many people are unaware that in different municipalities throughout the state of Wisconsin, there have been different degrees of decriminalization, for example. So we've we've done some research over the years. This was sort of a step back, however, to say, well, well, look, a lot has happened over the past couple of years in terms of our neighboring states. We have both uh, Michigan and Illinois that have legalized for recreational purposes. Uh, Interestingly, at the time we wrote this report in February, it appeared that Minnesota was going to follow suit. At that time, it had Just medical marijuana was legal, but indeed that happened subsequent to the publication of the report. And we just took a look using some mapping software at just how accessible is the legal purchase of marijuana for Wisconsinites. Now, it doesn't mean that it is legal to bring it then back over the border into Wisconsin and use it. We, we know that it is not. But what we found was that three out of every 10 Wisconsin residents above the age of 21 were living within an hour's drive of a uh, legal marijuana dispensary, and about half of all such Wisconsinites uh, within 75 minutes. And so that means pretty easy access. And our point here was not to use that as a pretext for saying, well, then we ought to legalize for recreational purposes, but just to say we really need to think about the consequences, both the fiscal consequences of people being able to take a short drive over the border and spending their dollars in a neighboring state, but also public safety and and other potential consequences.
4: Well, and although the intent might not have been to, you know, advocate for the legalization of marijuana, we are right now having a conversation statewide as a result of, uh, I believe, a just-released bill uh, in the Assembly that would legalize forms of medical marijuana.
3: Yes. And so, again, we, we, we put this report out a couple weeks ago. We had no way of knowing, there, though there had been some talk that the Republican caucus, particularly in the Assembly, was working on legislation and that this might indeed uh, legalization of, of marijuana for medical purposes might rise to the forefront in the legislative session early this year. And indeed, that's the case. Um, I think it still has a long way to go. But again, I think that what our neighboring states have done is germane to the conversation.
4: For sure. Now, uh, the next one, I, th- I think a lot of people would find this uh, finding <laughs> surprising. Wisconsin is at rock bottom in supporting its state parks. And, and when you say rock bottom, that is the bottom.
3: Yes. So among the 50 states, when you look at it per visit, and, and the reason we're doing it that way is that that is the national data source that we had access to. But per visit, the national average in terms of the 50 states is uh, states are spending about $3 per visit to a state park. Wisconsin is number 50 among the 50, and we are spending in terms of state dollars dedicated to state parks, not county parks, not municipal parks, state parks, at only $1.08 per visit. And and Joy, I think I'm sure one of the reasons you you found that surprising is we just have such a strong reputation as being a state that so values outdoor recreation and conservation, et cetera. And and again, it may have several different policy implications associated with that finding, but I think it is a notable finding.
4: So we're going to move on to the next finding. And this is something that I think has been in the public conversation a lot, especially since the pandemic, but in the last couple of years, people have been talking a lot about early childhood education. And the finding here is that the economics of early childhood education just don't work.
3: Yes. So we all like to think, when we think about government programs, we I, I think most of us in an ideal world would, would want to see free market principles at play. Here we have a public good, arguably a public good, because I think that's where part of the conversation here is. Early childhood education. We know what an indispensable role that plays for our state's economy, uh, for businesses, um, of course, for parents, and also it is a relatively large sector of our economy that has lots of employees. And so the the question is: Here we have a product where we know that prices are high. When we look at the cost of early childhood education, we just use Milwaukee County as an example. The average annual cost of having your infant in childcare in Milwaukee County is about $16,200 per year. Uh, that's as of 2022. And so, how can it be that the cost of childcare is so high, yet the wages that childcare operators are able to pay to their employees are so low? And, and they are very low. We took a look at what average big box stores pay to their employees. And quite frankly, you can make more at Target or Walmart uh, on an hourly basis than you can caring for our precious young people uh, in our community at 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 an early childhood education or or, child care center. And so why is that? We did a report that looked at it, that modeled it, and essentially one of the problems is is that it's not an entirely free market in this case um, and that there are certain state requirements – that are driving up costs that many of us would argue are justifiable because of the safety needs and the desire to promote high quality when it comes to early childhood care. And so those costs are driven up in many different ways, and yet the market will not bear the types of charges that would enable child care workers to be paid more.
4: And now it's not subsidized in a way that it had been during the pandemic.
3: Well, so that is the real pressing policy issue: is that when the pandemic occurred and so many childcare centers uh, either went out of business or had to pause business, the, the desire to keep a sufficient number of childcare operators in business was was paramount for when the pandemic eased and people returned to work. And so federal pandemic relief dollars have been used since 2020 to really be able to prop up the industry and to keep the child care rates for families of, of going even higher. And those dollars have been exhausted. There have been state Dollars, So the state has some discretionary federal pandemic relief aid that it has con- continued to channel into this, but those dollars are also running out. And that is one of the primary areas where Governor Evers has suggested that the remaining state budget surplus, at least a portion of it, be used. Uh, Republican legislators have, have proposed some alternative ways of investing in early childhood care. Um, But the bottom line is this is still at an impasse, and there's a lot of concern as we go throughout 2024 of what's going to happen uh, as those federal dollars do get exhausted. Yeah.
4: The next finding I'm going to say is, well, I guess a mixed bag, right? You you see it, and on its face you go, well, that seems good. It seems good that arrests are down in the city of Milwaukee. Uh, But also, why? It could be good. It also could be not great.
3: Yes. So this is a project we did that was designed to look at the justice system in Milwaukee County as a whole. We know that there are very few areas of local and state government that were impacted more significantly than the justice system by the pandemic. Just by virtue of the fact, the the inability to have face-to-face interaction uh, with jurors, with witnesses, in terms of of law enforcement, to be able to interview people and, and personally interact. So we wanted to take a look at the extent to which the system had recovered from the peak days of the pandemic. And one of the interesting, very notable findings that emerged was that when you look at the number of people being arrested in the city of Milwaukee, we looked at countywide data. We also drilled down into city of Milwaukee data. The number of arrests, so arrests as reported to the FBI are divided into part one crimes, which are more serious crimes, part two crimes, which are less serious crimes. Uh, In terms of part one crimes, arrests uh, in calendar year 22 were 36.8% lower for these more serious part one crimes uh, in 2022 than they had been in 2018, and a whopping 61% lower for these less serious part two crimes. And this decline in arrests really began prior to the pandemic. And what for us was very notable was that as the pandemic began to ease, we didn't see arrest numbers start to go back up again. Instead, we saw them continue to decline. Now, this raises a number of questions, and we are the first to tell you that we can't give all of the reasons why. We did a bunch of interviews. Uh, we don't have data. But as, as you were getting to in your question, Joy, I, I mean, I think you could look at this and say, on the one hand, well, is that a bad thing to the extent that perhaps arrests were being used as too great a tool by law enforcement and that there were too many arrests coming down to some more reasonable levels, some might argue would be a good thing. But when we see a decline of 61% in in part two crimes and 37% in part one crimes, something different is happening here in terms of the way that policing is being conducted on the street. And the question is, what is different? Why is it different? And is it having an impact on public safety? And these are the questions that actually we hope to get at in some subsequent research that we plan to do in this calendar year. Um, I can tell you that um, we talked extensively to Milwaukee Police Department officials and other stakeholders, and some of the reasons are pretty logical. Uh, Certainly reduced uh, number of police officers on the street is going to have an impact on the number of arrests, but also the fact that emergency calls for service are way up over this period. And so there is much less time for proactive policing among the officers who are on the street, which is also having an impact.
4: This is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers, and I'm speaking right now with Rob Henkind from the Wisconsin Policy Forum about some of their top findings of the last year. Now, we're going to look at um, another thing I think people are very interested in. Everyone in the state of Wisconsin has an interest in education. It impacts so many different parts of our communities, and uh, this is not a great finding. Uh, Statewide teacher turnover is surging.
3: Yes. And so in some respects, this is probably not a surprising finding to many. There has been a lot of anecdotal concern generated among K-12 superintendents and, and stakeholders. We know that inflation has played a big role in terms of the ability of school districts to be able to appropriately compensate their teachers. Uh, and in terms of, you know, there's no question that teaching in the grand scheme of things is not a high paying profession. And so added cost pressure. So we've heard about school districts struggling to retain and recruit new teachers. We took a look at the data and found that the 2022 23 school year, which was the most recent for which we had data available, 15.8% was the rate of teacher turnover. So either left their own district in that year or left the profession entirely. And the average over the 2009 to 2023 period was 11.5%. So that 15.8% was also about three percentage points higher than the year immediately following the adoption of Wisconsin Act 10, where we know there was a big surge in teacher retirements that year. But even in that year, the turnover rate was about 13%, again, 15.8% in 2022-23. So you think about that. If, if an individual school is on average losing 16% of its teacher workforce every year, that's a big challenge.
4: Yeah. Now, you've talked a little bit about what's ahead for 2024. You talked a bit about looking at arrests in the city of Milwaukee. What are some of the things that you're really excited to dig into in this next year?
3: Great question, Joy. And I could <laughs> I, I could go on all day, and I don't think we have all day. Uh, but but we have a, a, a few big projects. Uh, first of all, we have a couple of big pro- projects concluding, and you'll see reports on those in the first quarter. One is a, a, a sequel to a big report we did on the future of the Milwaukee County Parks. And in this one, we are drilling down very specifically into the potential promise of really uh, vastly enhanced intergovernmental cooperation between the County Parks Department and uh, the Milwaukee Metropolitan Sewerage District on the one hand, and also municipal governments on the other, and where there might be um, some real opportunity to have better collaboration among those parties to really try to address some of the um, generation-long challenges facing the county parks. Um, we have a, a, a big uh, report coming out on how healthcare entities in Milwaukee County, both health systems and health insurers, are investing in housing for their clients and their patients, um, and the extent to which investments in housing might be a very important way of producing better health outcomes and reducing healthcare costs. We're doing a whole new series of reports on the K-12 system of schools in Milwaukee. We know that we have been sort of a petri dish when it comes to experimentation on the K-12 front, for better or for worse, in terms of our mix of choice schools, charter schools, and public schools. And this is sort of gonna be a step back. What have we created here? How has that changed over the past 10, 20, and 30 years? What are we seeing in terms of changed student outcomes? And where are still the biggest gaps? And and there's clearly been a lot of attention to those issues, but I think, again, taking a look at the data and a a sort of retrospective look is gonna be very informative for some of the key questions that we have going forward, including a possible referendum that's being considered by the Milwaukee Public Schools uh, to try to bring in more resources there. So um, those are just a handful of of some of the big projects we're working on.
4: All right, well, I look forward to reading all of them. Rob, as always, thank you for joining us here on Lake Effect.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Rob Hankin is the president of the Wisconsin Policy Forum, and he spoke with Lake Effect's Joy Powers. Did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Just search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcast to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and like effect interviews. In about 15 minutes, we'll tell you about the first of its kind hearing test developed for Hmong speakers and the difference it's made in healthcare. But first, actor Willem Dafoe recently starred in the Golden Globe winning movie, Poor Things, and he now has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. We'll talk with him about his Wisconsin roots coming up next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM Milwaukee's NPR. You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Actor Willem Dafoe has received four Academy Awards nominations, has been in over 100 films, and has over 30 years of experience in experimental theater. His most recent film, Poor Things, recently won Best Motion Picture for Musical or Comedy at the Golden Globes. And this week, Dafoe celebrated getting his own star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. I met with DeFoe back in 2022 at the Main Stage Theater on UWM's campus, where he first performed as a student to talk about his career and his Wisconsin roots. Willem DeFoe, welcome to Lake Effect on Site. It's such a pleasure to meet you. Thank you for taking the
1: time. Thank you. Nice to be here.
0: So we're sitting here in the same theater on the same stage that you performed on over 40 years ago as a UWM student. How does it feel for you to be in this space? What memory is coming back to you right now?
1: I'm thinking about those shows. I'm thinking about uh, what kind of person I was in those days, about what I loved, what I hated, what I was aspiring to. I'm getting a flood of uh, memory. Yeah, it, uh, this place was. Uh, yeah, ha- has a place in my mind and my memory. It's not lost. It's still there.
0: When you were first nominated for an Oscar in 1987 for Platoon, uh, you said in this interview with Stephen Colbert that you were, quote, a dopey actor working down in a little theater. So I'm curious, what was your identity when you were here at UWM?
1: I was a dopey kid from Appleton who wanted to be around these people that were making theater in a university setting. And... uh, That was it because my accent was very much on the theater department, probably to a fault. I look back on it and I I took very few courses. I really jumped into uh, production courses here and got very involved. That's not what I recommend for everybody, but uh, for me at the time, I had ants in my pants and that's what I needed to do. So I, I look back on it very fondly.
0: So you're focusing very much on theater, on theater production. When you were working through those short-term I felt like a little goals. kid.
1: Uh, also because I was 17. I hadn't yet graduated high school. I had, I had lived in a, a much smaller town, Appleton, Wisconsin, f- about 50,000, 60,000 people. So Milwaukee was a big city to me. I was living, you know, uh, couch surfing. Uh, I was living in a very <laughs> hand-to-mouth way. I was taking jobs. To uh, you know, pay for my time here, so it was an adventure. But I always felt a little bit like I was an imposter, um, both as a student and as a uh, you know aspiring actor.
0: Well, even though you say you know you felt like an imposter, was it uh, your dream or ultimate goal as a student that the stuff you would learn here you know you would take to stage or film elsewhere? Did you know that being a performer was it for you?
1: The beauty of being young is I didn't look that far in advance. Um, I was just happy to be around you know, people that I thought were interesting, that were doing interesting things. I was learning things. I had uh, things that were being uh, required of me that had never been required before. I was very independent. It was a whole new life, so it was very exciting. So I wasn't even thinking about career. I wasn't th- even thinking about what would go next. I, I remember even there were moments where I thought, well, if this doesn't work out, maybe I'll join the army. <laughs> Can you imagine that?
0: Well, you said it was uh, challenging, you know, your couch surfing, taking on various jobs, just trying to sustain yourself week to week. Did you have a favorite part of Milwaukee that you'd go to for escape or for comfort?
1: I didn't. I, you know, I didn't have that much free time. Between working and being a student, and I didn't have money, so um, it's not like I had this leisure time. So I I did like going to the lake. I um, got a little nature boy in me, uh, and that was about as good as it gets around here. I was m- mostly living, uh, you know, living and working not far from the university. I lived on Farwell for a while, Farwell Avenue, uh, and. Uh, you know, the, there was a bar on Downer that I used to meet friends at, and I used to go to the Downer Theater. Uh, those Love the Downer memories. Theater. Yeah, it, it, that was important because I remember uh, that was, you know, a lot of students get exposed to foreign film or art film through film societies. Well, because I think there were so many uh, students that weren't living here, there wasn't a strong film society that I knew of here. but. The downer picked up the slack by presenting really good, uh, uh, really good programming. So I remember seeing some good art films there and some good, uh, uh, some beautiful things. Yeah.
0: So you've been in well over 100 films and have embodied so many characters. So, at this point in your career, I'm curious, what influences, what roles you take on? You know, are you looking for specific things, say, in a script or a type of character? How does a project pique your interest?
1: Um. The director is very important. Um, I look at the script, say, do I want to do these things? Uh, do they interest me? There's a little bit of, would I want to see this movie? Would this be a good adventure? All those things, all those things. I, You know, I, I, it's not really based on a character. Also, you want something to do. You want your feet held to the fire. You want some sort of challenge, because that's going to kick it up and uh, fly or fail. It's going to be an experience, and that's what you look for. And you try to find the right people to do that with. That's basically it. But traditionally, a lot of actors talk about script. Script is a blueprint. It's not the most important part sometimes to me in a film. It's great to have a good story, but film is a lot more than story. It's about uh, music, cutting, camera, light, location, tone, all these things. and. Uh, also, a great script that isn't realized, who, who cares? Um, so I usually go with people, and as far as character, you don't know what a character is until you do it.
0: So speaking of character, I'm wondering on the flip side, when you're done with a project, how do you put a character to bed, so to speak? Do you have any rituals or things you like to do to reset before you move on to the next thing?
1: Um, I think it, some some films, some characters linger, some don't. Um, You're activated by the camera, you know? You become that character when the circumstances that let that character come out are present. When those go away, the character tends to, you know, kind of (laughs) wither away. Unless you learn something that may not be the character, but sometimes I learn something that stays with me and impacts on me and will stay with me to the next thing. But usually, then that gets bumped or trumped or changed by the next thing you're doing because there's always kind of that process of cleansing and you don't want to go to the same well. Not as a point of pride, but it's just not as much fun uh, to to repeat things.
0: So you're perhaps best known for your portrayal of villains, but what is the appeal to you in playing the anti-hero?
1: Uh, you know, I think it depends on what films you watch. I, I got to make a little uh, a case in my defense, I probably play more characters that are not villains, but uh, the more commercial movies, I tend to play villains or, or unsavory characters.
0: Are, there, are they just complex rather than villains?
1: Well, no, I, I, I just think that I had some uh, success with that early in my career and that uh, commercially that's uh, I was like a go-to guy for that where in uh, the independent sphere and the uh, international film sphere, they know me from different things, and I have different opportunities there. But playing villains is fun. You get to do things that you can't do in life. Uh, you know, it's like a guilty pleasure. It, it exercises, you know, I'm a nice boy from Wisconsin, God-fearing and all that, so uh, it lets me be a bad guy. Uh, there's some fun in that. It's fun to be bad, but also, I go back to this thing of whenever you play a bad guy, you got to give him his day in court. You 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 develop the good side of him. You try to have a complex character, so you're you're not thinking of him being a bad guy or a or a a, a good guy. Those are kind of lazy labels. And villains sometimes describe a character, and sometimes they describe or antihero, as you said, <laughs> or. Uh, antagonist, whatever you said, uh, sometimes that that identifies how they function in the story. And sometimes I identify with those people more than the hero, uh, because those are sometimes where the most interesting perspectives lie, because they're representing a perspective that challenges the norm, challenges the thing that we all live by, and I think that's important even if sometimes it's a little uncomfortable or a little unsavory, it it pushes us to say, what is our true nature? What is that, what is that thing that makes us go towards, you know, bad behavior?
0: So one of your most notable roles, and especially you've had a, a recent homecoming to it, was the Green Goblin. And are you familiar with the meme of Norman Osborn saying, I'm something of a scientist myself? I am. What do you think of that as part of your legacy?
1: <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. You know. If people have fun with stuff, I'm, I'm happy for them.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so being a performer, you've had a pretty nomadic life, too. But I'm curious, what Midwestern qualities do you think have stuck with you? Uh,
1: it's hard to uh, separate Midwestern qualities from, you know, my family uh, qualities. But since my father was born in Wisconsin, but then he was educated out east, and my mother's from Boston, Still I think I I have a lot of my father's values about hard work and being self-sufficient and very um kind of puritanical uh work hard uh, strong work ethic discipline don't you know lean on anybody um maybe that's not wisconsin but I I associate that a little bit with how I grew up because the community I grew up with I always associate uh, through the years, I've worked a lot in Germany, and I felt like it, it it was a very Germanic culture when I was growing up. So I think that stays with me uh, in some ways for good, in some ways for not so good.
0: Well, Willem Dafoe, it's been an honor and a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you. Willem Dafoe was an actor on both stage and screen from Appleton, Wisconsin. We spoke in 2022 at the Main Stage Theater at UWM. We want to hear from you as we gear up to cover local elections and the presidential election in November. You can have a say in our 2024 election coverage by filling out our election survey. You can find a link to that at wuwm.com. What you tell us will help inform the stories that you hear on Lake Effect and WUWM. We'll take one more break and then return to share more about a first-of-its-kind hearing test that was developed here in Wisconsin. Keep listening to Lake Effect on Milwaukee's NPR. Mm-hmm.
4: Mm-hmm. He lost his reason, lost his life. He killed his friend in mortal strife. He must keep moving like the rolling skies. Just do wait until he dies.
0: to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Wisconsin is home to the third largest Hmong population in the U.S. As the community ages, hearing loss is becoming a big problem, but few clinics are equipped to treat Hmong speaking patients, leading to a health disparity in their care. Part of a hearing evaluation is a word recognition test, which shows when speech is loud enough for someone to understand. The test only comes in the most common languages, like English and Spanish. If the test isn't available in someone's language, they don't get that test. Over the last few years, researchers at UW-Madison have developed the first Hmong word recognition test. WUWM's Lena Tran spoke to the people behind the test this summer. First, she speaks with Mai Chu Lor, a UW-Madison assistant professor of nursing, who led the project.
2: The development of the test really took place because of my father. (laughs) He uh, had hearing loss since she was a child. So when I was doing a postdoc at Columbia University, I would come back home frequently and family members were telling me that my father's hearing has declined significantly because he wasn't responding to conversations, even though he did have a hearing aid. And I have brought him in to see his doctor through the ENT clinic here at uw And in conversation with his doctor, he learned that I was a nurse researcher and that I was coming back to Madison, UW-Madison here, and he has suggested that we should collaborate. So it was really through his motivation and support that I had pulled together a team of uh, him with audiologists and linguists. Just more broadly, could you talk about some of the health needs
5: For the Hmong population, I also understand that the language is primarily oral, like
2: the written language isn't used by a lot of people. From our prior qualitative study that we actually did to get a better understanding of what are the hearing needs in the Hmong community, what we've learned is that due to language barriers and the cultural stigma that comes with hearing loss, not a lot of Hmong people are getting care for hearing. And so that's been a challenge. And then on top of that, you know, even getting hearing care, you know, with the lack of culturally and linguistically appropriate tests for Hmong patients, they're not getting comprehensive, equitable care, right? Things are done based on the peritone test, which is the test that have them listen to different frequency of tone or sounds. You know, the care that they're getting is not as up to par, and so, with my father's story, because of his declined in hearing, there was conversation about whether or not he would be a potential candidate for cochlear implant. And we couldn't proceed because there isn't the word recognition test. And so that was kind of the motive for why we did this study. And then we learned that there are a lot of Hmong patients who are also in the same kind of boat. For people
5: that don't have access to a word recognition test, you mentioned this tonal test. Can you talk about like the limitations of that, if that's all that's
2: available for someone? To my understanding, the peritone test, it's really just... A test that looks at frequency of hearing loss. How much sound can they hear versus words, right? Words that are clear. Are they able to repeat? That's being missed. And so the only adjustment that audiologists would be able to do with the peritone test is just to help patients hear frequency, like how loud something is versus clarity.
5: So what... Is a word recognition test? What does that usually entail?
2: Yeah, a word recognition test is a test that encompasses words that are phonetically balanced and are familiar. In the English word list, it's between twenty to fifty words, depending on what audiologists choose. It's been validated, and these are normal words that that English-speaking patients would hear and use. So they're like daily words like bat, ball, right? And so for the Hmong, it's the same kind of concept where we would find phonetically balanced Hmong familiar terms to be used with Hmong patients. And then for us to make sure that it actually does work, we validate it with the community here in Dane County.
5: Okay. And so if it's like a test of like 50 words, are they like played for someone? And then I guess what are they saying? Like, yes, I can identify these different words or...
2: It's digitally recorded. It would be played. We went through a really rigorous process of selecting members from the community who have very clear pronunciation and fluency in the Hmong language, to record these 50 words. And actually we have four lists of 50 words. So let's say the word is cat, but then the patient heard it as bat. That's incorrect. So different levels of hearing will allow them to hear the word differently. So if they have true, good hearing, they should be able to hear the word as exactly as it is. Part of the word list is to really use familiar Day-to-day terms that people would understand. And then the testing of the word list is to really figure out whether or not they could recognize these words, right? To help audiologists assess how to adjust hearing assessment, whether or not they're like, you know, patients are a candidate for cochlear implants, really to inform treatment. And what's currently in practice for the Hmong population is that they don't get any of that, which is part of comprehensive standard of care for, you know, English speaking patients.
5: And for people that are Hmong speakers, what have you observed, I guess, in terms of their reception to the test or, you know, it making them more comfortable in a healthcare space?
2: People were so excited about this project. And we had so many people who are interested in participating in this initially because this is a validation study. We only included normal hearing people. So that's why we had then built in a second study to say, hey, you know, we're not going to like exclude you, but, you know, after we validated this, we will bring you back. My goal is to get it to clinical settings so that. Hmong speaking individuals could start using it and get better care. And so I'm currently working with the director of audiology through our UW Health system here to implement this and test its feasibility. So Hmong community members are very excited because we've not had anything for the community that's of the Hmong language, and we have an aging population that's coming through. You're listening
5: to Lake Effect. I'm WUWM's Lena Tran. That was Mai Chu Lore talking about a project she led to help create a hearing test for Hmong speakers. Now we'll hear from Cali Lore, a native Hmong speaker who also worked on the project. So what was your relationship with Hmong, I guess, as a language before you got involved with this project? Was this something that you grew up speaking, like hearing in the house, that you were fluent in, or or not so much? What how would you have described that?
6: So, obviously, uh, I am Hmong and I grew up Hmong and speaking Hmong in the household. My parents don't speak English all too well. So, uh, me and my siblings, we grew up speaking Hmong in the household. Obviously, I think it's, I think a lot of immigrant families experience this kind of linguistic erasure and cultural erasure as you kind of move and assimilate to different, um, to the environment that you're surrounded in. I honestly got, interested in linguistics come completely by accident because in my in in my family because my parents have like a very I guess a diverse background Uh, like they were born in Laos live like kind of grew up in Thailand in the refugee camp and then now they're in the United States so with all of those influences I grew up kind of hearing a lot of different languages in the household Mm. not that my parents spoke them all the time but but it was just because they grew up in these places so they were very. Very much into these types of music or 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 mm-hmm. films or TV shows, and so for me it was really just growing up watching all of these things and all these different languages. And I think as I grew up, I language just started connecting for me in different ways, and I kind of started to to explore that curiosity. It kind of made me um, sad because I, I I realized how much of of our identity is also linked with language and culture as that kind of goes away. Cause I have cousins who are the same age as me. And um, most of, some of them don't, don't, don't really speak Hmong at all. Mm -hmm. And it always makes me curious how they communicate with their parents in the household when I know their parents' English isn't that great either. And I think seeing that disconnect and even within myself, you know, not really, even noticing just the, the the small parts of of the disconnect with my own parents and the language, I think really strengthened my my desire to like reconnect with it again, and really in this case like dissecting it even even more than what we normally would do on a, on a daily basis with the language that we do speak.
5: That's great. Um- yeah, my mom is Thai and my dad's Vietnamese, and I don't really speak either language. And kind of what you were saying about your cousins earlier, there's like a lot of complicated feelings around that. And so I'm curious what you meant when you were talking about the disconnections that you started to observe between yourself and your parents over language. What did that feel like or look like for you?
6: I think as someone who has studied linguistics and, and realizing just how, how deeply embedded it is, in, in terms of culture I think just not really not I think not being able to find the words to communicate with my parents I guess the best way I could say would be in, in, in a healthy in a healthy way I think You know, when you're when your vocabulary is limited, you tend to just reach for what is the closest and even then it doesn't quite describe how you feel or how you think and that leaves a lot of room for misunderstandings that leaves a lot of room for, I guess just pain and hurt as well too, so just not being able to express myself in a way that I wish I could because doing it in English is, is not useful if they don't understand and doing it among is not useful. If I can't fully, I can't, if I can't fully utter all the words that I want to. Uh And even when they're talking to me, like they can say stuff and I'm like, I, I got like half of that. Like, I don't know what the other half means or I don't know what that word means, or I don't know what this expression means. Uh And so sometimes just finding the, the frustration of not simply being able to communicate with someone that not only do I live with and whom I love, but we're supposed to speak the same language. And, and yet we're still finding this disconnect, like something is just not clicking here.
5: Yeah. Yeah. So you're in college and summer before senior year. Tell me about how you got involved with this project.
6: Uh, well, I was actually in one of uh, Lindsay Walter, Dr. Lindsay Walter's um classes at the time. Class kind of was just like a very normal linguistics class. And I, I, I know that Lindsay Walter, I just really got an email from her and she just told me about this project. And she said she's looking to find two students, linguistics students, who obviously also have like a Hmong language background mm-hmm. um, to kind of help like do this research project. And she said she, was very interested in asking myself and then Micey as well, if we were both interested. And we both were. We both were very much interested. So we both said yes. I, I guess I'm curious
5: what like the process looked like for you. Lindsay mentioned that you looked at some reference works among stories. I'm curious what those stories were about. Tell me what that summer work looked like.
6: When we first started, Professor Walter was had given us a lot of reference articles on kind of just like how previous uh lists were were created and just kind of some general background information articles that we read the thing with that is a lot of them especially obviously since we're in the united states a lot of them were done using obviously english as as a reference for these lists but the big difference between doing one for among wordless as well versus the english one is a lot of like the foundation has already been created for for english where like for the Hmong language there was pretty much nothing so basically normally for an English one you have all these databases that that basically contain like every every single possible English word Mm -hmm. that exists and it basically calculates the repetition of consonants and vowels and obviously in this case for Hmong it would it would account for tones as well but with all of that you were able to kind of compile a, a list that closely reflects the amount of occurrences in terms of mm-hmm. in vowels. So this is where our storybooks and our folklore and children's books all kind of came into play. We had to create our own word bank database to pull from. And that's basically what these books were. You know, we compiled a bunch of different Hmong folklore and folktales, Hmong kids books, anything that we could really find in text. And then we had to extract all the text from all of these books and stories and then put them into essentially what is an excel spreadsheet but once we were able to kind of extract these words from these texts we were able to kind of break these words up into its parts and then count the frequency of how much these consonants and sounds and vowels and tones occurred Mm -hmm. and then once we could figure out the frequency of, of these occurrences, we could create a list based on those. That's so cool.
5: What did your parents make of your involvement? Did you share the project with them? And what did they
6: think about it? I did. But I think, you know, going back to like that disconnect part is that I don't think they fully understood the idea of the research project. And so it, I think it was like a little bit hard to explain the process. And as weird as that sounds, because the thing is when that project came to me, it kind of came at a really, really good time where I felt like I was knowledgeable enough to the extent that I could understand how like breaking down the linguistic aspect of it, but also really appreciated it because my father also was actually l- l- like struggling with hearing loss at the time. Um, and he still is to this day. And he is still like any typical Asian man, very resistant in using his hearing aids. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, it's a, it's a, it's a daily battle to get him to, to wear those. So for me, I was able to appreciate it on, on, on several different levels. Cause I was like, like seeing my dad, not being able to hear well every day and not even really being able to have basic conversations with people, because if they talk to him, he either doesn't he can't hear so he misunderstands what they're asking a lot or he just doesn't respond to them Mm. and I actually went to one of his hearing tests once and obviously at the time like the hearing test I went to just used like beeping sounds um not actual words but just seeing that and being like wow yeah if if they were doing like a hearing test that required them to use words for me it was a matter of like is is he hearing but not understanding or is he not hearing at all And when you can't pinpoint that problem, you can't find a solution for the actual problem you're trying
0: to to find. That was WUWM's Lena Tran speaking with two members of the team behind the Hmong hearing test. She spoke with Mai Chu Lor, a UW-Madison Assistant Professor of Nursing, and Kao Lee Lor, a native Hmong speaker and member of the Linguistics team. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Joy Powers, Sam Woods, and Excret Nunez join me in producing Like Effect each week with help from Robert Larry. Becky Mortensen is our executive producer. We also heard from Eddie Morales, Lena Tran, and Mayon Silver from the WUWM News team this week. Jason Reavy is our studio engineer. Michelle Maternowski is our digital manager. Valeria Navarro-Villegas is our digital editor. Trapper Shep wrote our theme music. You won't hear Like Effect on Monday. We'll be off for Martin Luther King Jr. Day. But we'll be back with new stories on Tuesday. If you've missed any of the Like Effect this week, you can find all of our conversations at wuwm.com. If you'd like to take the show on the go, you can download the Like Effect podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks so much for joining us today, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.